0: The scripture reading for this morning is from Mark chapter 15 beginning of verse 21 and we will actually be reading only through verse 39 and if you have a Bible uh, in front of you that is on page 852 so Mark 15:21 through 39 please stand for the reading of God's word. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, "Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani," which means, "My God, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, last week we considered the trial before Pilate, in which at the conclusion of that trial, if you could call it that, uh, Pilate essentially through his, well, did, literally, wash his hands of Jesus and say, I'm not responsible for this man's death, gave it over to the will of the crowd to make that decision, and then gave over Jesus, of course, to be crucified. And this week, we've arrived at that point, the, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus Christ. And what I want to do this morning is just take an extended introduction to walk with Jesus, the man of sorrows, along the way of sorrow, from the Praetorium, from where Pilate passed judgment on Jesus, to Golgotha, and to the cross on which Jesus would hang and die. And then we will briefly look at four things that I think it's critical that we see from this text— as we consider the death of Jesus on the cross. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this story, for preserving it for us, that we have a record of what happened. But ultimately, of course, we thank you for what was accomplished at this moment in history, the salvation of all who have put their trust in you, Lord Jesus. We thank you. We pray that you would help us to hear afresh or perhaps for the first time, the good news from this dark day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's walk with the man of sorrows along the way of sorrow for a moment. If you look back in your Bible at the end of verse 20, we see that they led him out to crucify him. So Jesus would have been in this... Praetorium, the governor's mansion, uh, where Pilate was staying. Pilate would have passed judgment over Jesus at that point. And when Pilate delivered Jesus over to be crucified, he would have had, at that point, the crossbeam bound to him. The crossbeam, of course, the part of the cross that uh, hung parallel to the ground. And um, it would have weighed about 100 pounds, This was common. The the criminals who were sentenced to crucifixion would have to carry their own crossbeam. Sometimes they simply carried it. Other times their arms were bound to it. They had to carry them in that way. Sometimes they were actually, they had their, would have been nailed around the wrist, nailed to the crossbeam. And they carried the crossbeam, again, that was up to 100 pounds with them to Golgotha to be crucified. John 19, 17 tells us that Jesus started out carrying the crossbeam. Nearly 2,000 years prior to that, Abraham had gone out with his son, his one and only son, his beloved son Isaac, and Isaac carried the wood and they were going to the hill where Isaac would be offered as a sacrifice. Isaac was spared because a substitute was provided for Isaac. But here, God's son, his one and only son, his beloved son, went to the hill carrying the wood, and he would be sacrificed. Jesus would have gone out from the praetorium at the center of four Roman soldiers. The four Roman soldiers formed a group known as the Cotornion. There would have been one, one, you know, one, two, three, four. Jesus would have been at the center carrying the crossbeam. There would have been an officer in front of Jesus. He would have been holding a sign. In fact, you see that down in verse 26. In verse 26, it says the inscription Of the charge against him read, the King of the Jews. That would ultimately be nailed to the cross above Jesus, but it would have been carried on a post. The piece of wood would have had white chalk over it to make it completely white, and then ink would have been used to write the charge, the reason why the person was convicted. Again, that was common practice, that's how it was done. And so this officer would have been going before Jesus carrying this sign. This man claimed to be the King of the Jews. And they would have taken the long way out. They wouldn't have taken the most direct route from the governor's mansion to Golgotha. They would have taken the long way, the most circuitous way way around the city that they could, so that everyone could see and be warned. This is what happens to anyone who would dare to stand against Rome. In verse 21, it says, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And so now, Jesus, the four soldiers, the officer out in front, have made their way to the city gate. And there's a man named Simon from Cyrene, from North Africa, who is making his way in. He's certainly a Jew from the diaspora, from a far country. He's probably there in Jerusalem for the Passover. Pilgrims would come from all over. Simon is making his way back into the city. At the gate, Jesus stumbles and falls, and the soldiers say to this man, just happened to be coming through at that time, you're going to carry the crossbeam. It's interesting that Mark tells us that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. If you go to Mark chapter 16, you'll see that a man named Rufus is mentioned. It's one of the people whom Paul greets. And and theologians throughout church history have good reason to believe that that Rufus is the son of Simon of Cyrene. Implication being that Simon was converted through this experience. And he told his family about Jesus. And at least Alexander and Rufus put their trust in Jesus for their salvation. So Jesus then, with Simon carrying the cross, make their way out to Golgotha. Golgotha was a, a hill just outside the city, both Romans and Jews, said that if a person was going to be crucified, they had to be crucified outside the city. So that's where the executions took place. The, the small hill was right next to a public highway. So it, again, assurance that everyone coming into Jerusalem would see and be warned. When you get down to verse 23 then, we find ourselves in what we could say is the first three hours of the crucifixion. Verse 22, they brought him to a place called Gagatha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, Jewish women, one of the ways in which they sought to show mercy to people who were being executed was to, in what they believed, in fulfillment of Proverbs 31, verse 6, which says, offer strong drink to those who are perishing. These Jewish women would, you know, be part of a rotation out there at Golgotha, where people were being persecuted, offering wine mixed with myrrh. Everyone at that time knew that myrrh had uh, a sedative property. And so, they would offer this sedative as an act of mercy to people who were being crucified. And Jesus wouldn't take it. I will experience the full force of what's happening here at the cross. I won't allow my senses even to be deadened in the slightest way. In verse 24, it says they crucified him. Now, what happened in a crucifixion? In this case, Simon, who was carrying Jesus' crossbeam, it would have been taken from Simon and laid down on the ground. Jesus, beaten, bloodied, flesh torn Jesus, would have been laid down, and his arms would have been, at that point, extended on the crossbeam, and nails would have been driven through his wrist. And then soldiers would have actually picked up that cross beam and set it in place on the beam that was already set in the ground. And then his feet would have been nailed to the cross. His feet, just like all others who have been crucified in that manner, they would have been set parallel, so right on top of each other, with one knee kind of folded over the other knee, and a nail would have been put through both feet at the ankle. Jesus would have been nailed to the cross in that way. There's archaeological evidence that this is how people were crucified. We don't rely on the biblical record here. There are tombs that have been excavated and bodies that have been found dated to the era of Jesus. Dated to this time in which those kinds of wounds were found on those victims who were clearly crucified. It was an unimaginably horrible way to die. The Jewish historian Josephus said it was the most wretched of all ways of dying. Cultured Romans wouldn't even mention the word. There's a story of an actor in a play who was pretending to be someone who was crucified, and he was actually punished And it was said of him by the magistrate, you know what, if you weren't Roman, we would be tempted to have you crucified for even pretending to act out a crucifixion. That's how vile it was in the eyes of Romans. Death was ultimately by exhaustion because the person being crucified had to push themselves up on that spike through their feet in order to breathe, in order to take a breath. Eventually, the victim being crucified would fall unconscious and then die. But the way in which they could know and be certain that the person was dead was by using an iron club in order to break the legs of the person who was on the cross at the, um, just above the foot. I forget the name of that bone. Shin bone, whatever that's called. They would use an iron club to break The victim's legs. And again, archaeological evidence has been found of legs being broken in that way. That would have been the fate of the robbers to the right and to the left of Jesus. And then in verses 25 through 27, it was the third hour when they crucified him. That would have been around 9 o'clock. The description of the charge against him read the king of the Jews, as I mentioned. They, with him, crucified two robbers. We know from the other gospel accounts that one of those robbers would have put his trust in Jesus for his salvation and heard Jesus say to him, today you will be with me in paradise. So that's our introduction. We're with Jesus, the man of sorrows at the place of his crucifixion. And there's four things I want us to consider briefly from the rest of the story. The first is the link between the darkness and the first cry. The link between the darkness and the first cry. The second is the link between the curtain and the second cry. Between the curtain and the second cry. The third is the irony of the mockery. And then the fourth is the clarity of the centurion. So, first, the link between the darkness and the first cry. We see this in verses 33 and 34. And when the sixth hour, that's noon, had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That would have been 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me the darkness what does the darkness signify this wasn't an eclipse Passover happened at the time of the full moon this was a miracle God was doing something here what does the darkness signify the darkness signifies the curse of God there was darkness over Egypt when the first Passover lamb was slain, at that time when all of Israel was in bondage in Egypt, when God was delivering his people out of Egypt through the 10 plagues, that 10th plague, the death of the firstborn son, darkness covered all of Egypt. And only those who had the blood of the lamb on the doorway found that death would pass over the firstborn son of Israel. And in that way, All the firstborn sons in Israel were saved. Darkness is now over the land when the last lamb is slain. The final Passover lamb. This firstborn son of Israel would not be spared. His blood must be shed in order for his people to be saved. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus, is now shrouded in darkness. What happened in the darkness? What happened in the darkness? The cry tells us what happened in the darkness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cry proves that in the darkness, Jesus bore the curse of God. The Son of God bore the curse of God. This was the agony that Jesus anticipated in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember that. When Jesus cried out, let this cup pass from me, Yet not my will, but your will be done. This is the cup. It wasn't about the physical pain of this horrible death. It was the turning away of the Father's face. It was the darkness of separation from God. At the moment of his cry, we see the zenith of his separation. What do the darkness and the cry mean for us? There are two verses in the New Testament that that pointed out well to us. In Galatians 3.13, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And then in 2 Corinthians 5:21, Paul writes, "For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God." There it is. In the darkness, Jesus bore sin's curse. That alienation from God, that separation from God, that forsakenness by God that we deserve because of our sin, that curse that ought to be on us went on Jesus. That we might never experience that separation from God. The darkness and the cry... Means you need not fear the ultimate darkness, the ultimate darkness of separation from God. Second, the leak link between the second cry and the curtain. Take a look with me now at verse 35. I'll explain what's going on in 35 and 36. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Now, these are not mockers. These are people who are actually seeking to be merciful to Jesus. Maybe they're also at some level waiting to see, is Elijah going to come? There was kind of this popular Jewish expectation that Elijah would return at a time of great need amongst the nation of Israel. But this sponge filled with sour wine, that was actually meant to offer, a, a, you know, satiate someone's thirst. So this is a mockery here. They're trying to minister to Jesus in that moment and then in verse 37 and jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last mark doesn't tell us what he says here but john tells us in john 19 verse 30 we read that it was at this moment that jesus cried out tetelestai which means it is finished or maybe more literally mission accomplished it's done It was at that moment that Jesus cried out, It is finished. And it was at that moment that back inside the city, at the temple, there was a curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And the text tells us that at that moment, that curtain, this heavy curtain that separated the most holy place, the place where God's glory dwelt, the place where only a high priest could go once a year and only taking sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of the people, that curtain was torn from top to bottom, signifying that God agreed, mission accomplished, Access now is granted to God. The author of Hebrews puts it like this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. God is a holy God. We are sinful people. We deserve nothing but God's wrath. Jesus bore God's wrath in our place. And we know, not only by his resurrection, but by the torn curtain that he accomplished his mission. And so therefore, in Christ... Through faith in him, we have access. The torn curtain and the second cry means access has been granted through faith in Christ to God. Third, let's look back then at the irony and the mockery. Look at verse 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Now, when Jesus was being tried before the Sanhedrin back in Mark chapter 14, Remember, they brought all these uh, false accusers. They were trying to get Jesus convicted on the testimony of two witnesses, and even the false accusers couldn't agree in their testimony. But one of the charges that was brought against Jesus was, hey, Jesus said he was gonna destroy the temple. And so these people were there. They were present. Maybe they were part of the Sanhedrin. Maybe they were servants who were present. Maybe they were just observers to what was going on in those early morning hours when Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin. But either way, they're saying, okay, you who said you would rebuild the temple after destroying it, come on down. Let's see what you've got now. Now. And then in verse 31, so also the chief priests with the scribes. So now these are members of the Sanhedrin, those who would have convicted him of blasphemy and then brought him to Pilate with the charge of he claimed to be king of the Jews and is therefore a threat to Rome. They are saying in verse 31, to themselves, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe they laughed and they mocked because he could not come down the irony of course is that he could have come down he had said to Pilate, and we have this recorded in john 18 36 that his kingdom is not of this world yes i am a king but my kingdom is not of this world when he was betrayed he had said to one of the disciples that he could call down 12 legions of angels to deliver him He could have come down. He would not come down. He would not come down in love. He would not come down until the ransom was paid. Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That's happening here. Jesus would not come down until tetelestai. He would not come down until the ransom had been paid paid the temple they mocked him for saying that he would destroy the temple his body was the temple it was in him that people would meet with god he wasn't speaking of the physical temple he was talking about his own body when he said destroy this temple and i will raise it up in three days Finally, we turn to the clarity of the centurion. Verse 39 says, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. This centurion, this Roman soldier, who would have been perhaps the one leading the way, along the way of sorrows, to Golgotha, This soldier who would have witnessed, overseen countless crucifixions, marveled at the way in which Jesus breathed his last. He did not slip into unconsciousness. He raised himself up on his feet. He shouted, Tetelestai, and then he breathed his last. And he said, surely... This man was the son of God. We started studying Mark's gospel about 18 months ago. Mark told us in chapter 1, verse 1, where we were headed. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And now somebody's got it. This is the first time in Mark's gospel that somebody says, the Son of God, he's been called the Messiah, he's been called the Lamb of God, he's been called all manner of things, he's been called demon-possessed by the scribes and the Pharisees. But here's a Roman centurion of all people who says, surely this man was the Son of God. Clarity. Clarity. Have you experience that kind of clarity with respect, with respect to the Son of God? Have you? Look closer to what's happening here. Look closer to the claims of Christianity. Consider what this is all about. If you're here, if you're watching on the live stream, if you watch this years from now, who knows? consider the claims of Christ. Don't let this pass by. Next week when we come back, I'm going to show how this passage, what we've just talked about, but especially the resurrection of Jesus Christ at the beginning of chapter 16, is unlike any other religion in the world, and it cannot be made up because no one would ever write the story this way if it were a myth or a legend. And not only that, but all throughout this passage that I read this morning, there are time and again, Scripture being fulfilled from Psalm 22, from Psalm 69, from Isaiah 53. These things that were written 700 years and more prior to that are coming true here. Seek clarity concerning ultimate matters. Consider the claims of Jesus Christ. Don't look away. Don't look away. Pick up a book like Tim Keller's The Reason for God or Making Sense of God. Grab a Bible if you're here. Take one with you. If not, buy one. Just pray. God, I don't know who you are, if you exist, but I'm hearing these things in this sermon right now. If you are real, help me believe. Do not look away. Put your hope in Jesus Christ for your salvation. One of the great joys of preaching through Mark's gospel has been doing it in conjunction with our church plant, New City Fellowship in Beechwood. Uh, Pastor Chris and Pastor Alex and I have, have met each week, depending on who is preaching, to go over the text and talk about where we felt like we were headed, making sure we understand what's there. And this past week, I met with uh, Pastor Alex, and he said something that just was so true. He said, you know what? The low point is the high point. He's so right. The low point for Jesus, his excruciating, literally, death on a cross, was the low point. But it was also the high point. Jesus said, unless I am lifted up, and by that, he was talking about his manner of death, the cross, unless I am lifted up, people will not be saved. By my lifting up, people will be drawn to me. Jesus said in John, he's praying to God, and he said, now, God, is the time for your name to be glorified. Now is the hour. This is the hour. The low point for Jesus. So it seemed... Was in fact the high point. And if your trust is in Jesus Christ, your low point will be your high point as well. Your low point is your death. Death is coming for us all. And apart from Christ, it will be a low point. But for those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, your low point will be your high point as well. Because Jesus experienced the utter desolation and forsakenness of Christ in the darkness of his cross. The darkness of death will only be a shadow that passes over you. And will in fact serve to usher you into the nearer presence of God. Where you will know fullness of joy. Your low point, or so it would seem, will actually be your high point through the death of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you sent your Son, your one and only Son whom you love to live the life that we could not live, a life of perfect obedience to you. Only those with clean hands and a pure heart can stand before you, and only Jesus had that. And then he went to the cross to die, to take away the defilement of our sin through his cleansing blood, to experience the darkness of forsakenness, that we who have put our, our trust in him might never, ever know separation from your love. Lord, would you by your spirit seal these truths to our hearts? And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.